Tie is powered by the Seneca Network. We're a podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from Greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Thank you to the SubChina and Seneca Network team, especially co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. This week, we featured Joan Kaufman. She's a serious wealth of information considering her profound exposure to China. We cover a lot of ground chronologically in her career, especially those inflection points where one thing just leads to the next. There's also much insight about reproductive health, AIDS prevention, and feminist movements in China that Joan experienced firsthand. Let's listen in. Joan, I am really excited to have you on Top for Top today. As I've said, your name always comes up when I'm asking about women in China. To provide listeners some more context, and I hope that I can do you justice here, you teach, advise, and conduct research on global health policy issues, and you're currently the New York-based director for the Shores and Scholars Academic Programs. But prior to that, you have a really impressive resume working in many different capacities across the United Nations Population Fund, the Ford Foundation, the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, Harvard, and Columbia University. I'm excited to share with listeners about your personal journey in China. I mean, you've lived here uh, in New York, but you've also lived in China for over 15 years and make frequent intercontinental trips. Without me talking more about you, I would love if you could tell listeners a little bit more about how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah, well, I'm happy to. And just a correction, I did have a few years at Columbia, but most of my academic career has been in Boston, mainly at Harvard and to some degree at Brandeis University. So, And how did I get to where I am today? Well, you know, I started off as a China studies major in college, which I got to through the art history route. I did a summer class in New York to kind of get some extra credits for my art history major and ended up taking a night course at Columbia University that was basically held at the Metropolitan Museum of Art at the Chinese Art Exhibits. And I really was converted to China studies. I went back and started studying um, Mandarin simply because I was doing calligraphy and I was interested in knowing what the characters meant. Pretty soon found myself, you know, as a full-fledged China studies major. Then I transferred to Berkeley because there wasn't much uh, in the China studies world in Hartford, Connecticut, where I was, and ended up doing a master's there. And then when I finished that, my father said, master's in Chinese studies, my father said, it's really interesting, honey, but what are you going to do with it? Uh, that was around, <laughs> that was the late 70s. And it was before there were really, you know, really much happening in terms of China careers. Yeah. Joan, I have to ask, what initially drew you to calligraphy? Was it the style of writing? Was it just the beauty of the way that the calligraphy looked? What drew you to taking this class on calligraphy? Well, I took it because I was doing uh, an art history major. It was kind of art and art history. And, uh, you know, I got, I got interested in calligraphy through the Chinese art route, uh, the Chinese art history route. So I started taking calligraphy as, you know, just to, just to learn how to write characters because I thought they were so beautiful. And, and that led me into studying Mandarin. So yeah, it was really through the art history route, which I left, you know, in the back, in the rear view mirror pretty quickly once I got into modern China studies, you know, for my, my major, 
my undergraduate major, and then I did a master's degree. Uh, but I had done my thesis for the master's on the Chinese family planning program and population program. And that was, you know, in the late 70s. There wasn't a lot written about it at that point. And I did it as a political science issue, looking at the campaign style, you know, of of social engineering in a way. And I got so interested in the public health dimensions of it, I decided after my father made that comment that I'd never be able to support myself as a China studies major, that I probably should get a another degree. So I got a degree in public health. That was at UC Berkeley. I ended up uh, then getting recruited uh, out of the public health program track, actually, to the UNFPA that was opening its office in China in 1980. So I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. The medical advisor to the UNFPA was a professor at um, UC Berkeley and somebody I knew whose wife had grown up in China and was very China-connected. And he referred me for the job. And as a complete unknown, I got this incredible job in China in 1980, when the UN really was honestly just opening the offices there. Deng Xiaoping had invited the UN in in 1979 and to really help with the four modernizations. And UNFPA was one of the agencies because, uh, you know, felt like they needed to do a full, a, a good census, which hadn't been done, I think, since 68 really before the Cultural Revolution, and they'd never really done a scientific census. So it wasn't, um, you know, the, the, it was a people count, but it wasn't really computerized or anything. So UNFPA came in working with the UN Population Division and the China State Statistical Bureau and did this, you know, we did this massive uh, census, um, you know, with lots of data entry machines and computers and which we had to get export licenses for trained I think it was something like six million enumerators some unbelievable number of people wow. to, to do um, you know a massive census and it was easy to do at that time because people had not started moving around a lot there wasn't the, the massive you know migration so people's residence was tied to their hukou, and it was, you know, pretty easy to count people. It was before the one-child policy, so folks were not really hiding kids, and uh, that 82 census has been the reference census, I'd say, the reference count uh, for the population ever since. It's um, It was, a, you know, a really good count. Yeah, what did it feel like at that time? You know, you're in the first years of the opening up of China. You were I don't know if you knew at the time how important, how much gravity that initial census would have just as a benchmark for the future. D did you realize the the impact you, that you were making and the the historic sort of nature of being in China at this time? Well, no, you know, it was so much at the beginning of the reform and opening up period. You know, Deng Xiaoping had just kind of resumed power. I got there in 1980, and what, you know, and I think there was a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen. It was just, you know, the end of the Cultural Revolution had only only been a few years before. People were very traumatized, and in that first winter I was there, uh, the Gang of Four went on trial, and, uh, you know, after the Gang of Four were convicted, uh, I think there was this kind of audible feeling of relief, a sigh of relief in the whole country. And I felt things started really changing at that point, but I didn't really have a sense of what China was going to become. I don't think anybody realized 
you know, this huge juggernaut that was taking off at that point. It was, you know, uh, still a very traumatized place, still a very socialized economy. Uh, at that point, you know, there were real restrictions on foreigners socializing with their Chinese colleagues from work. Of course, I had all these friends from my academic life uh, who were on the first sort of uh, CSCPRC exchanges. So my friends were Chinese-speaking students from Berkeley who were studying things like art and history and stuff and were at Beida and Tsinghua. So I was always hanging out over on the other side of town with the students. But most of the people in on the, uh, you know, in the what was became the central business district, but there, there was, you know, Beijing was just an overgrown village at that time. Um, <laughs> most of those people, uh, you know, were the, the, the diplomats, the journalists, the business people. Um, you know, it was a very isolated life, a much more isolated life at that point. There were, you know, real, certainly for the diplomats, we lived in these diplomatic compounds and we did not socialize with our colleagues from work except in official um official functions and you know they they still had to do we st- it was still a six-day work week and they had to go for political study on Saturday afternoon and probably report on us you know and it was it was still very very much the uh you know the old society I would say and uh uh you know the the pre-opening up um kind of society a lot of political control um so, you know, it was it was hard to see at that point what was coming, but I had this long view because I kept coming back. So, you know, to compare those days to, you know, now, even with the, um, you know, the political tightening that's going on right now, it's still, you know, two different worlds, major, in a major way, you know, you can't even compare it. So when you were there, did you at least then start to feel the the gravity of what you've been studying? I think it's interesting that... You went and got on your master's because your father said, what, what's the relevance of your major? Did you start to feel that you were putting together the pieces of the weight of the the studies that you had? It seems like also the the landscape for studying China was very different when you were a student compared to now the work that you do in helping students understand China. Yeah, it was different. You know, I was at that point in my life where I was, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. I had this great job with the UN. You know, I was so lucky to get a job with the UN as my first job. And uh, I could have had a long career in the UN, you know, when um, I had two two two-year contracts with UNFPA in Beijing. And then I was looking at my next posting. And I really had to make a decision about whether I was going to become a UN person and go to another country and give up China or uh, pursue the China track, right? And I made the decision. I had a number of options like Djibouti and Fiji and, uh, you know, uh, none of which sounded that appealing to me. Uh, But... Mm. um, But, well, Fiji sounded pretty appealing. But, of course, I was young and unmarried and worrying about, you know, was I going to ever meet anybody and all that stuff. So, you know, I didn't think uh, Djibouti was going to be the place that was going to happen. So, uh, but anyway, it was, and I often joke that I decided to go back and do my PhD because I, you know, wanted to be someplace where I was going to meet somebody. Uh, And uh, (laughs) so that was the decision I made. I left China after four years and I, um, I had deferred my, uh, I had been admitted to Harvard, to the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, 
from Berkeley before I took the UNFPA job. So I just, you know, I deferred it for four years. They were interested in me because I was in China. And, you know, that was pretty unique. And I had published my thesis as a book on, you know, the Chinese, called The Billion and Counting on the Chinese Population Program. Uh, so I just, you know, I went in 1984, I went to Harvard and did my PhD in public health. So I really made a, a conscious decision at that point that I was going to go the public health route after, you know, working for four years, um, you know, in a technical agency doing development assistance that was, you know, somewhat public health oriented. I My degree, my PhD was in population and international health. So I had a big dose of demography and the population studies in there. And um, so that, you know, that was the decision. But I did my research in China for my PhD thesis. I got, I had, I was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, which was, of course, interested in China and working in China. And um, had been working in China, but was interested in the China population issue. So my uh, support came from the Population Sciences Division at the Rockefeller Foundation, and they funded my uh, PhD research in China. I went back to China, and I did a rural survey uh, in Fujian and Heilongjiang over uh, 1987, where I was really looking at the rollout and implementation of the population program, which at that point was the one-child policy. Now, I have to ask about this. What was it like doing a survey in 1987 in Fujian in rural part of China? I mean, I've spent some time in fourth-tier, fifth-tier cities in China, but that's nowadays in 2018. How did you go about finding people, and what sort of partnerships were you working with, and was this kind of your initial entree into really being an expert on the one-child policy? Well, my my entree was working with UNFPA for those four years because I'd okay. already come in with a you know with a book on the Chinese population policy, so I was following right. it all. And you know, the I was the UNFPA expert essentially, you know, on China and the population program, working at the UNFPA office. So that's why I decided to pursue it for my PhD and. And why the, probably the Rockefeller Foundation funded me. But I ended up, you know, I was working because I had really great working relationships with the government because I was working with UNFPA. And, and you know, the China really likes the UN system because it's a member of the UN system. It's on the Security Council. And, and it's, a, you know, it's always been a great vehicle for China collaboration. So I had a good sort of leg up having been with UNFPA for four years and uh, I had great working relationships with the government. So I just partnered with the government and I was working with what was called then the State Family Planning Commission and they assigned a few people to me uh, who became very good friends, you know, and kind of continued up in their hierarchy. One of them is the head of the uh, International Cooperation Department of the Ministry of Health now because they've merged, right? And uh, they all became friends and, um, you know, and we worked together. They were my team. They were kind of junior people at the State Family Planning Commission at that point, one more senior person. And we traveled together, and they worked with the government, the local government, to pull together the, you know, the, the lists of married women of reproductive age for our sampling for the um, interviews. And then we administered a, a questionnaire, which I had developed uh, you know, with my department people and my advisors. And we looked at a number of different things about the family planning program and the population program. 
and I published quite a bit about it with my colleagues from the State Family Planning Commission. They're all my co-authors on these articles that came out in the, you know, the sort of leading journals in the population and family planning field. And that, you know, that was the requirement for my thesis was three published articles in addition to the actual dissertation. So, you know, I think having done that with my colleagues in China, I developed a reputation which I think I I value very much and which I think is has um, served me well in my China studies as somebody who doesn't steal the authorship, you know, but acknowledges the, you know, my, my colleagues who I work with all the time on my publications. And we, you know, and, and I've, I've done that over my whole career. But, you know, that was, of course, a, you know, put me on the map for working in this area of the China population and family planning program, having those, that thesis and doing the field research in China and publishing those articles. Uh, so it was important for my academic career, right? Right. And those collaborations, it seems like, have been important for you over the course of your career. Are there other collaborations that really stand out to you? Yeah, I have, um, you know, a few. I did subsequently, you know, sort of after I finished my PhD, I was working in, uh, you know, my academic life. I did a series of studies with colleagues in Kunming, from Kunming Medical College, funded by the Ford Foundation. That was before I joined Ford. Did two or three studies that collaborated with this research team from Kunming Medical College. Uh, and that led into another set of studies that were, those studies looked at, um, you know, reproductive health issues in rural China. We looked at the financing and utilization of reproductive health services and that was uh, during the time when the health services had become almost entirely privatized, you know, during the 80s and 90s, before the reforms that took place in around 2008. And the disincentives to use for poor rural women were so enormous that there was, you know, just a host of reproductive health problems in rural areas, including reproductive tract infections. Uh, so I did a survey with other colleagues uh, looking at at reproductive tract infections among poor rural women in two counties in Yunnan province. The other study on the financing uh, and utilization of reproductive health services was in five counties in uh, Yunnan. And then that led into, that financing study led into a much bigger initiative called the Gender and Health Equity Initiative. Uh, That was Mozambique, India, and China. And the team from Kunming Medical College and the Ministry of Health and I worked together on doing a much larger uh, set of studies looking at, Mm. um, you know, comparative studies between India, Mozambique, and China looking at gender and health equity. And I, those were really important studies. They really changed the face of the reproductive health program in China in many ways because we mainstreamed a lot of these issues into a big World Bank project that was being that was the vehicle with the Ministry of Health. The person who, from the Ministry of Health who we were working with was in charge of that big, larger World Bank program, had himself been a barefoot doctor, and he was able to really, under he understood the maternal and child health issues and, and the importance of sort of doing things like paying for delivery, safe delivery at the hospital. And uh, so we mainstreamed a lot of those findings into the larger health reform effort in China. And I feel very proud about that. And then, you know, I transitioned, just to say that I transitioned 
later to working on HIV AIDS and many of those relationships, you know, really uh, that I'd built in those early days helped for my later studies. But those collaborations were with Tsinghua University and with one colleague there who I've worked very closely with over my whole probably the last 10 or 20 years uh, on the AIDS work and who I ran my Kennedy School program with. So we did a lot mm. of work together as well. How, do, how does family planning transition into to age and HIV prevention? Was it that it became a more pressing epidemic in China, that there was more awareness about these uh, epidemics in, in the country? Or was it something where there's an expertise that comes from uh, census planning and family planning that naturally lended itself to to this area as well? Well, I think it was, um, you know, the AIDS epidemic in China really was not acknowledged until the late 90s and early 2000s after the SARS epidemic. Uh, but it was clearly, uh, you know, it had been percolating in southwest China as an epidemic among injecting drug users through the heroin, you know, uh, marketing and trade in mm. the Golden Triangle. But it really hit the screen in China when there was this paid blood donation scandal that happened in central China. It was just rural villagers who were donating blood for money. And it was a, you know, unsanitary blood donation scheme where they were pooling blood and reinjecting the red. It was a plasma. They were extracting the plasma for, you know, to sell the pharmaceutical industry and reinjecting the red, pooled red blood cells. A lot of people got infected in central China. And that's when it really hit the screen in China. Uh, mm. But, the you know, that was mainly in Hunan province. And there was just a huge amount of denial over many, many, many years. And, you know, on a personal level, I had, after I finished my PhD at, um, at Harvard, I got pulled into working, doing a lot of work with what was then called the WHO Global Program on AIDS. And it was uh, set up as a kind of emergency agency within WHO to deal with what was the exploding AIDS epidemic in Africa, mainly. Uh, this was in the uh, really in the early 90s. And they were looking for people like me who understood things like condom distribution programs, you know, how to how to do how did family planning, the family planning world uh, market contraceptives, like especially condoms, you know, and build up, you know, information and education programs so that people would use contraceptives or slash condoms, right? So I got pulled in as a family planning expert to lend my expertise to the AIDS epidemic. And I did a lot of consulting for GPA, the Global Program for AIDS in Africa during the early 90s. So that when I joined the Ford Foundation, and, and actually, because of that, I started looking at the AIDS epidemic in China, because I was a China person, right, and had been working on reproductive health, and was got very involved in kind of early efforts to deal with the injecting drug user epidemic in southwest China. So when I joined um, the Ford Foundation in the 90s, uh, it was a big issue for me to kind of try to, knowing what had happened in Africa and other places in the world, I could really see the writing on the wall for China, which was in real denial about its own AIDS epidemic. Why? Why, Why? was China in denial? Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, this they were 
first of all, the paid blood donation thing was that, you know, that was associated with, there was some kind of semi-official, you know, relationship to these, you know, Red Cross centers where the blood donation was happening. So this was about protecting people who had been associated with it, right? And mm. without a really full extent of the understanding of the uh, how many people were infected. Um, the drug users in southwest China, they were just kind of considered social garbage, and who cares about injecting drug users, kind of they deserve to die attitude, right? Mm. Even while the epidemiologists and others were looking at it, uh, you know, China was in denial that it had an AIDS epidemic and had blamed any cases of AIDS in the country on foreigners who, you know, had were tourists and others who were visiting China. It just was, you know, head in the sand kind of thing and a sensitive issue. It was transmitted by drugs and sex and, you know, those kinds of things. So, you know, there was just nothing happening. So I got very involved with a group of other donors in Beijing, the, um, the, the global program at AIDS at that point had transformed into something called UN AIDS. Uh, they had an office in Beijing. I worked closely with them and with other donors, and we tried to mobilize, you know, pool our resources and mobilize a response to the AIDS epidemic. Uh, so we had a kind of donor working group working with, you know, people in government uh, and agencies uh, who were epidemiologists and others who really understood what was going on and, you know, did a lot. We tried to uh, mobilize an economic impact study and a bunch of other things that had been done in Thailand and was a significant lever for getting the government to respond to the Thai AIDS epidemic. And so, you know, we did a lot of things, but I ended up putting a lot of my portfolio at Ford, not a lot, but a substantial amount of resources, uh, helping to support some of the early studies and on what was happening with um, HIV incidents, supporting um, some of the, the NGOs that were emerging at that point. I provided money to a gay men's publication that was doing AIDS education for gay men around China, the first ever and supported, you know, um, the early parts of a sort of positive persons group that, you know, ended up becoming an important group working with government and, you know, helped support, did supported studies looking at sexual transmission among young people and college students and just supported where I could, the activists or the academics or the government people mm. who were uh, trying to mobilize the champions in China who were trying to mobilize a response to the AIDS epidemic. And not just me. I mean, there were other groups there that were doing it as well. Uh, DFID, um, the, you know, the UN AIDS organization, UNICEF to some degree, uh, World Bank. You know, we, we pulled ourselves together and just tried to use our resources and our influence and contacts to try to get stuff going. Uh, it was very interesting that, you, you know, the um, China CDC had had set up a group uh, that was active and you know we were supporting that and it was it was just you know an interesting this was the late 90s i would say but what really changed things was you know was was the SARS epidemic in 2003 i was going to say that must have been a key another key turning point uh for the cadence of how aids was treated in yeah. china yeah oh, no well it absolutely was and because what happened at that point was uh you know, the Minister of Health was fired and the um, this, you know, community of kind of uh, advocates for the AIDS response that came from many different parts of the, you know, they were local, they were NGO, they were government, they were, you know, others. 
saw the opportunity to make the argument that uh, early, you know, taking on board, doing what was, you know, early prevention would prevent a massive AIDS epidemic from taking off and early action and acknowledgement. And so things started after that. They acknowledged the paid blood donation scandal in central China and put in place the four freeze and the one care program. And things really opened up and took off after that. Um, and in fact, I when I left Ford in uh, 2001, uh, I started a program at the Harvard Kennedy School called the AIDS Public Policy Training Program. And that program initially worked only in China, then we ended up working, you know, sort of duplicating it in Vietnam uh, a few years later. But that program, I was working with my close colleague at Tsinghua University, um, and we were training government officials, uh, municipal officials all around China on the multi-sectoral response to AIDS. And I think there was a, there was a lot happening at that point that really just helped feed into the 2003 turnaround, a lot more people sort of understood the global experience in kind of early acknowledgement um, and putting in place, uh, you know, ways to get people to come forward for testing and, uh, you know, what the what the ingredients were of a successful AIDS response. Yeah, actually, I want to ask you about that is, do you think there are any key insights? Could you almost extract this from the entire time that you've spent working on this, some key insights related specifically to China that really were able to advance that the response or the success of the response to HIV and AIDS in, in China? Yeah, well, I think, you know, what you have with China is a top-down government system that provides, you know, uh, most of the of government services, the social services to people, um, for better or for worse, you know, the NGO piece of it is very thin and always has been for the service delivery stuff. Uh, health services are provided, uh, organized and provided for the country through a top-down system. So when, um, you know, you've got the um, political will to do something, uh, you can really implement it. And that's a feature of the Chinese system that I think has played out repeatedly in many different areas. The SARS response, for example, was, uh, you know, uh, you know, that went from top to bottom because there was a lot of political will behind it, uh, belatedly, mm-hmm. of course, but, you know, then very effectively. And similarly, um, you know, it's, it translates into lots of government services, uh, uh, not always perfect, but delivered by the government and, you know, with a certain, um, uh, you know, with an infrastructure to do it. And I think that's a feature of the Chinese system that's, you know, led to a lot of what we see today in terms of health and education. You've got a, you know, compulsory nine-year education. You've got a health insurance program, albeit with lots of room for improvement, but um, you've got a, a national health insurance program that, you know, does cover um, everybody for uh, some percentage of their healthcare costs. Uh, you know, the out-of-pocket is huge, but, you know, you've got a government that can do that, that has the infrastructure and the organization to be able to put in place um, policies and fairly quickly if the political will exists to do so. And that happened with AIDS. Once that decision was made in 2003 to acknowledge right. the epidemic and start a treatment program, um, what you've seen over the course of the last 
15 years, I guess, since 2003, is a scaling up of a national AIDS control program that, you know, it rivals pretty much every program, any program in the world uh, for its, you know, its coverage and for the policies. Um, you know, other parts of it, which are part of the global response, like laws protecting the rights of HIV-positive uh, people, um, you know, especially those on treatment, labor protections and things like that. They're, they're there in officially, but they're harder to implement, of course, in the country. So, but I think, you know, China's done a really great job with the AIDS response, especially if you see where they were in the 90s and where they are now compared to many places in the world. So I, you know, I think that's that's the government-led system and the government-led service provision. It, that's, you know, a feature of the Chinese system, a unique feature that makes it possible to do this stuff mm. in fairly short order once the political will exists. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. that's a lot coming from you. I think it's interesting that you're bringing up this political context because I think something that's been at the back of my mind is, wow, Joan, you've uh, focused on family planning, one-child policy, AIDS, domestic violence, reproductive health care services, sex education. These are not things that are necessarily the most talked about or the most open topics when I think about Chinese government landscape and just the context of culture in China. How and I mean, you are also working for large multinational organizations, NGOs that were partnering within China. How did you navigate and grapple with some of these sensitive issues and figure out what's the most appropriate way to to even approach some of these topics? Because I can't imagine that it was easy. No, I mean I think always because I've worked with my Chinese colleagues who you know, are champions within their own system and know how to navigate, you know, the political space. As a foreigner, no matter how much time I've spent in China, you know, I, I can't I can't come in and say, oh, you should do this, you should do that, right? Um, it's always been about finding and working with the champions, um, you know, in China who are like-minded and are interested in the international experience and can adapt that within the Chinese system, Um you know, I sort of, you know, I, I try to, uh, you know, find people who get it or are interested in these types, you know, or they're professional colleagues, right, who who are working on these issues. And uh, that was what I liked so much about my life with the Ford Foundation. It was really um, being able to have the resources to find and fund the champions, right, or find. I mean, they would self-identify. They'd look for funding, right? And and then build alliances and take a, you know, to some degree, the technical role that I could play with my own public health background or my own work on women's rights, uh, you know, to find people who knew how to move issues uh, in, in the Chinese system. Um, those people still exist. You know, that's the legacy of any work one does in the development or social justice fields is to, you know, leave behind a, a legacy of people who are, you know, moving these issues in their own system, right? It's, you can't come and prescribe it from, from outside the country. I mean, that was, uh, I'd say, you know, uh, coming into the Ford Foundation uh, in the years directly following the Beijing Women's Conference, 
Oh, that was, a, you know, a very important period of time for the Chinese women's movement. It was really catalytic. And, you know, many of these um, organizations that kind of coalesced around the time of the NGO form of the, of the women's conference ended up becoming these, you know, major vehicles for social change in China. Mm. In the years following the women's conference, um, yeah. Why? Why was the women's conference catalytic? That's a a strong word, a word that very much leaves an impression about the momentum that something like that conference could cause. Yeah, I, I, you know, I. That's a good question. I think that there had been these sort of series of women's conferences, but. Uh, there were two conferences in a row that kind of changed the paradigm of women's rights globally. Uh, the, the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo in 1994 and then the Beijing Women's Conference in 95 kind of solidified this really strong women's rights, reproductive rights uh, movement that was, um, you know, part of the global feminist movement, I would say. Uh, it was kind of a victory for a, a feminist or women's rights view of population and family planning that, you know, the, at the Cairo conference, the shift really happened from a population control to a reproductive health uh, approach to implementing family planning and uh, programs around the world. And so that, you know, the importance of women's rights, volunteerism, consent, rather than just a kind of, you know, ZPG, you know, zero population growth, control population numbers because we're running out of resources on the planet, you know, at the expense of women usually. That was replaced by much more of an acknowledgement of the importance of respecting reproductive rights and women's empowerment as part of the rationale for family planning programs. So there was a major paradigm shift from 1994 at the Cairo conference, and that fed in to this, uh, you know, every 10-year women's conference, which was happening in Beijing. Um, so you had a lot of the sort of global feminist community convened in Beijing with a kind of a mandate that I think, the you know, you had Hillary Clinton there saying women's rights are human rights. And, you know, there was a real mm, push, iconic. push for respecting women's rights globally um, as part of, you know, all programs, development assistance, everything, right? So that just, that was the global scene that happened and it came to Beijing. And then you had a lot of donors there, right? You had a lot of donors who would then at that point were working in China and got very much on the bandwagon of the women's rights issues. So there was a lot of support for this nascent women's NGO community that was building up around issues of things like domestic violence, or there was a women's hotline, there were programs for adolescent sex education, there was a uh, publication for rural women, uh, migrants who were in working in Beijing, that was all the, the, you know, rural migration, economic migrant thing was starting to happen. There were a lot of these women's NGOs, there was a, a, a women's magazines that were being published, and uh, the women's media project that was sort of taking on, you know, the representation of women in the media. And there were all these organizations that were working on different aspects of women's rights. And they coalesced to some degree around with the funding and the organization that went into the um, uh, uh, the NGO form of the 
Women's Conference. And the NGO forum of the UN conferences had become an important alternative convening to the government representatives. Um, the Copenhagen Conference and a couple of other conferences for different issues um, had, you know, had these... Did it just provide a more more raw perspective, a more real perspective? Is that kind of the foil that it provided? I think it was just the kind of, um, you know, a, a collection of sort of the transnational civil society actors who convened in Beijing and then connected up with these, uh, you know, the global civil society actors who then ended up in Beijing for the Women's Conference, connected with the Chinese nascent NGO community, and ended up forming these important connections that were beyond the government connections, you know, the, you know, the All China Women's Federation with the, you know, UN or UN organizations working on women's rights, I you know, see. it was, or the by or USAID or DFID or the government representatives, right? The, it wasn't the government conference, it was the NGO conference. And it's just kind of was catalytic. These connections were formed, the internet was available, so people stayed connected. And uh, really, like, I think it began connecting the Chinese women's movement with the global women's movement in a very substantial way that played out over years. And it was a very exciting time to be working in China on those issues, uh, together with other donors for, you know, supported a group of different Chinese women activists or organizations, I should say, not, you know, activists slash organizations that were working on domestic violence, some of them from the government, right? Uh, some of them local All China Women's Federation branches, to, and they formed this domestic violence network. Uh, we had a meeting in India. We brought four or five people together with Indian activists who were from the legal side and from the reproductive health side. And, you know, and the domestic violence network just kind of came together in the years after that and ended up leading to the, you know, the domestic violence law, which was uh, a lot of provincial regulations and then eventually a law for the country. So, you know, these things, I think, have just played out over time. It's really been exciting to watch. Right. Joan, has there been a moment for you where you've just been like, yes, this, we're making progress. I, I feel like what I'm doing is catalytic. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I'm very social justice oriented and who knows why, but, um, you know, I seem to be driven by trying to improve the lot of poor rural women often or AIDS, you know, uh, people who are infected by AIDS or women who are beaten by their husbands. I don't know, you know, I tend to be driven by those issues. And I think for me, you know, um, sometimes when I sit down and I think about some of the things I've done and how they've led to... You know, policy changes actually in China for the most part on different issues. I feel proud of what I've done in my life actually. And I feel like I've, you know, played some small part in, you know, improving social justice for, uh, you know, for different groups of people. I'm, it's just, you know, for me, I'm just, I, I like, uh, feeling like I'm contributing and seeing if there's an opportunity to do it and figuring out how I can take what I know uh, and, uh, you know, work collegially with people to try to move issues forward that are important issues. I can't say I ever sit back and really reflect on, you know, what's what's the next thing and what should I be doing at all. It sort of appears in front of me and then I'll take it on, right? Usually mm. in the context of a job, right? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I also want to put the, the Beijing... UN Women's Conference into context. 
1995, Beijing hosted the UN Fourth Conference on Women. And then in 2005, you played a critical role in revisiting the topic of women. I think, I think to revisit this again by 2025, what do you hope to see? Well, I mean, I think probably what you're referring to is when I went back, uh, I was, uh, you know, my, my third stint living in China was directing the Columbia U- University Global Center, uh, exactly. which I started doing in 2012, and I left in 2016. And I used the opportunity of being there to hold a uh, series of roundtables on, you know, 20, revisiting 20 years of, you know, Beijing plus 20, basically 20 years after the Beijing Women's Conference, how much had changed. So I was able to reconvene a lot of these uh, colleagues from the from my Ford life, uh, who were really the kind of core of the Chinese women's movement, to uh, come to the center. We organized two roundtables. We brought a lot of young activists uh, and older activists together. Activists, government officials, academics. They were, I, I say activists, but they were, you know, just feminists, I should say, probably more than anything else. And we convened groups of people um, to really talk about what were the, what were the current challenges, how much had changed, and what were the current challenges. And I think, you know, a lot has changed. And that was to some degree influenced by the one child policy, you know, but you have a lot of women, you know, you have more women than men who graduate from college at this point and, um, uh, and are entry level in jobs, they have a harder time rising up through the system. I think the system is not about girls' education and and job opportunity. It's about promotion within jobs. Um, so there's a lot of gender discrimination that remains. There is a lot of sexual harassment. Um, and But, you know, I think the Me Too movement, which we've seen in China, is also, uh, you know, gives you a sense that... Uh, you know, there's a cohort of young women these days who feel that brave enough to be able to take that on. Um, so things are changing. You know, there's a, a lot of gender discrimination. It remains. But as the country urbanizes, as the uh, uh, birth rate goes down, as more women are in the labor force, you know, you've seen a lot of dramatic change in the last 20 years. So, yeah, I mean, I think there remain challenges. Uh, mm. I think the one-child policy has been transformative for the country because, you know, I think women are really have just, um, to some degree, many women have abandoned their traditional route to respect and uh, importance in in their the, the the patriarchy of the country, which puts so much pressure on uh, women to get married and have male male you know, have sons to carry on the family name. Um, you know, it's just more and more a thing of the past. Uh, it's still obviously for rural women and for many young Chinese women, there is there is pressure to get married and have kids. Uh, but uh, the, the whole sort of norm has changed about numbers of kids. A lot of young women don't really want to have many kids, maybe just one that's the norm these days and you see that with the relaxation of the two of the one child policy to a two child policy that you know it's it's not uh, people are not you know having that second child in droves they're just not that interested anymore 
Um, Actually, I'm I'm really glad you brought this up, and I I'd love to get your uh, opinion and your advice on this. I think when I had learned about um, the change and the transformation towards the two child policy. I didn't really think that it was still restrictive of women's reproductive rights, but from what I understand that um, it's so important for reproductive freedom to really be returned to China's population and the two-child policy doesn't provide that. And I was hoping that you could provide some more um, nuance to that. Well, I think that's going to, you know, any restrictions on childbearing are going to end pretty soon. I mean, there's there's no need mm. for a policy. There hasn't been the need for a policy for a very long time. They should have relaxed the policy a long time ago. And, you know, as a result, they would be less skewing of the uh, working age population to the ever increasing elderly population and all the problems that ensue from that. Um, they don't need a policy. And I think just holding on to any regulations or restrictions in reproductive freedom is, um, you know, it's, it's an artifact of the earlier, you know, the mentality of needing to control the population and fear that, you know, there'll be a population explosion if the policy is relaxed. So I, I think it's just going to end any restrictions whatsoever will be ending sometime soon and the writing is on the wall. But, um, I just think it's, you know, it's a legacy of this 30, years, 38 years, how many years since 1980, since uh, the one-child policy was implemented of the government feeling that it needs to control fertility uh, as a government planning function. Um, and it clearly doesn't. So it was evidenced by the fact that uh, China's in below replacement fertility and uh, and people don't want to have a second child, right? So Right. Yeah, so it's just, you know, it's it's it'll it'll end and I predicted it'll end soon. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. I don't think there's uh there's any rationale for it anymore. Uh it's just holding on to kind of a power that uh has has been given to local authorities uh and uh you know, which they're so used to having. Uh Yeah, I think that makes I definitely think that makes it clear. Another thing I've also been thinking about is how education in its many various forms has also underlied a lot of your career. Why do you think education is so important? I know that might seem like a very simple or straightforward question, but I think in the context of the work that you've done, sometimes education can be difficult, can be a challenge, can be a lot of change change management, changing mindsets, um, and people might not always be receptive. Yeah. Well, I'm not your traditional academic, right? I didn't like uh, right. start the tenure track after my PhD and continue in a, uh, uh, as with a, you know, a continuous academic career. I've been back and forth uh, on in my academic career with, these, you know, jobs like uh, the Ford Foundation um, or... Uh, taking this job with Columbia, running the Global Center, uh, which was about sort of global education. I'm interested in education. I'm, uh, I really, I love teaching and I love the engagement with young people and students. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm so enjoying my job, you know, with Schwartzman Scholars Program, because, uh, you know, I'm really directly engaged with, you know, fabulous 
group of young people like yourself, right, who, uh, you know, are just out to, you know, are, are determined to go out and, and make a better world for us, uh, you know, in the uh, interface between, um, you know, China and the rest of the world, right? Uh, so, Mm. I don't know. You know, I get bored if I'm, I don't want to be in the ivory tower just teaching. I, I like doing that, but I'm very applied and I always have been applied in my career from, you know, the, the day I did my, um, you know, started my research for my, uh, PhD thesis in, in Fujian and Heilongjiang. I realized that, you know, the kind of work that I like to do is really on the ground with the, um, you know, the, the ultimate beneficiaries of the the work that I'm doing, you know, working with rural women or working on with HIV infected communities, you know, putting in place a counseling program for AIDS orphans in rural Anhui or whatever else I've done. All my research has been, and my research programs and projects have been about the ultimate beneficiary or working with the ultimate beneficiary. And I just translated that into a lot of consulting work in my life as well. And then ultimately these jobs that I, I keep leaving academia to go do, you know, and I, I really enjoy my time at the academy, you know, in the institutions. I uh, like having the base for research work. Uh, I mainly like teaching and engaging with students and, you know, that kind of mentoring and advising. But in the end, I just feel that I, I can't sit around in an ivory tower and just teach. It's got to be more about being on the ground. So I would say that has described my academic career. And, you know, I made, right. I made this jump from my, a much more kind of, um, I don't know, traditional academic career uh, in 2012 when I um, joined Columbia to run the Global Center in Beijing. And I really was, you know, driven by the mission of that thing, which was to create these eight global centers around the world that were going to bring kind of co-equal knowledge into the global discussions of, you know, various as aspects of, of global education or global issues. And that was a good job for me because I'd spent so much time in China working with so many Chinese academics and policymakers. I realized the importance of doing something like that, you know, providing a platform uh, for those types of discussions that were not just sort of China and Colombia, but, you know, China, Brazil, um, and uh, India, and, and, you know, and Columbia convened kind of Western academics. And uh, so I liked the idea of that. And I thought it was a really good idea to try to set up these global centers. Uh, um, so that's why I jumped for that job. And, you know, and then for the Schwartzman Scholars Program, well, I mean, this is, you know, it's a really great way for me to bring it all together in a way to, you know, take my huge interest in academia and China and uh, my, you know, connections at Tsinghua and really help shape the academics for this program. And it's really fun because I'm looking at, you know, global affairs and what are the, you know, the current and future issues in global affairs that, um, you know, young leaders uh, who are working at the intersection of China and the world need to really understand things like what's happening in artificial intelligence, how is climate change going to change the planet, um, and what are the global governance issues, inequality, you know, lots of issues like that that we're, you know, we're really trying to bring into the curriculum 
you know, the advances in medicine, uh, genomics, those kinds of things, you know, how are they changing the, the world? What are the ethical issues? What are the leadership challenges uh, and global governance challenges that, you know, will be on the screen in the next 10, 20 years, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely resonates. You've played in so many various roles and have accomplished so many things. I think it's great that you um, actually encourage asking this question of you, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't. Um, and I think... I want to understand more about, you know, points in your life, what it was like balancing being a mother, a wife, and a professional. And was there anything that you learned from those experiences? Or was there anything that you had to sacrifice, uh, both professionally and personally, uh, going through these parts of your life? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to be a, a woman professional and um, be in a relationship with somebody else who's a professional and have both your careers work at the same time. Uh, and, um, you know, there are always sacrifices. Uh, and, you know, I'm lucky when I look at the big picture, I say, well, you know, I met somebody uh, who, uh, you know, was just as happy to be uh, the not as happy, but willing to be the home parent, right? Willing to move with me in my career. Um, and I traveled a lot. I was always, I've always been back and forth to China in my entire career. Um, and, you know, my husband has been the, the kind of anchor person at home for the kids. And his career took a real hit uh, by following me to China. Uh, really went off track, you know, so, you know, it's, it's not easy. You, you get, uh, you make sacrifices along the way. And, and I didn't take jobs and I didn't get promotions. I didn't get advancements, uh, especially in my academic life early on at my Harvard life. I made the choice to get married and have kids, uh, you know, just as I was uh, finishing my PhD. And, I really got mommy tracked, you know, in my academic life. There was no question about it. But you mommy know. tracked? What does that mean? Well, that means you don't get the grants, you don't get the opportunities, you don't get the advance. The, uh, mm. the you know, it's uh, it, you know, Harvard's a lot better now than it was then, but it's still not a great institution for women. Um, yeah, I could have gone elsewhere. I chose to stay in Boston and. Uh, uh, and I just moved on. You know, I did other things. I went to the Ford Foundation. I did great things that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. I, you know, but, um, you know, I, you may, you, you get, make sacrifices all along the way. You know, uh, I couldn't stick around for those meetings at, uh, you know, those, uh, events that happened, that started at like 5 p.m. and went to 7 p.m. at the end of the day because I had to pick up my kids from childcare, you know, that kind of stuff. Those, those things where the, the academic world or, um, uh, institutions don't uh, accommodate for working moms, right? Uh, mm. And you have to navigate your way around that. You know, a big important thing for me in my life was moving to places where I had really um, fabulous women mentors in in my professional career, uh, bosses who had kids and who, you know, uh, understood what it was like and were flexible about things like... Um, uh, you know, the need to leave early or go to school meetings or, uh, um, you know, take maternity leave and, you know, not be penalized for it and all those things where 
uh, you know, understanding that it's okay to work from home sometimes as long as you get your work done. And, you know, those kinds of things I think were really important for me at very important points in my life. Uh, moving to China when my two kids were 10 months old and, uh, and almost four and really young. Uh, Really young, but having IEs who were really affordable and, you know, to, to help out on the home front. And, uh, and at that point, my husband was doing a lot of traveling also for his job. Uh, so, you know, we were balancing who was going to, we, we always, one of us needed to be in Beijing, uh, with the kids. We were not be, leave China and uh, leave both of us leave China at the same time. So that was a huge balance. We hardly even saw, ever saw each other for a few years there, you know, because we were traveling at different times. And, you know, wow. lots of lots of different sacrifices you make along the way. Um, but now I have these two kids who are grown up, you know, 26 and 23, and they're both completely China-connected. Uh, my daughter was just quoted in the New York Times a few days ago on an, uh, an article on, uh, uh, you know, cultural heritage protection of the Hutongs in Beijing. You know, she's had a, she's a China person in her own right at this point, a China scholar in her own right with her own, uh, career. And, you know, that's, there's a huge amount of gratification. I felt a lot of guilt in my life, dragging my family around the world, back and forth to China, moving them so often, um, and feeling like I screwed up their lives, you know, and their careers and everything. But in the end, I think, you know, it's created this really rich experience, uh, certainly for my children, um, definitely for my husband as well, you know, but more sacrifices on that front, I would say. But for my children, you know, I see that how comfortable and China connected they are. They're both people who will be, you know, living out China careers in their own rights uh, in their years to come. So, you know, it's it's got trade-offs, but it's, you know, where I'm looking at it from this point of view, it's got a, also got a set of benefits, right? Right. I mean, it's very exciting just probably see how providing your children that China experience at such a young age, I'm jealous, uh, how that has really paid off uh, over time and that it's something that they've embraced and accepted. Um, that must be really exciting. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think, you know, I, I mean, I could go back and do sort of uh, 2020 hindsight on my career and some of the sacrifices <laughs> I've made, how much I traveled when my kids were young and, you know, that I should have been there more, uh, you know, and it's, it's hard to be a woman and a mother and, uh, and do everything and feel like you've done anything good enough to tell you mm. the truth. You just always feeling like you're sacrificing on all sides of it to try to make it all work. And, Fortunately, I'm a really energetic person and a good multitasker, like lots of women. And, you know, and I've really been passionate about what I've done. So I think the combination of all of that have probably made it kind of good enough on all fronts. But, uh, you know, I feel I feel guilty about every angle of it. <laughs> like I could have done more. I should have done this. I should have done that, you know, and, uh, you know, everybody's damaged because of it. Uh, but, you know, that's it's hard. You can't, you can't make it all work. Right. It's and I difficult. don't think it's the first time that I've heard that from, from someone even on, on this show. I, I have to ask you, you, I mean, you spent 15 years in China, but since then, 
What keeps you coming back to China? Do you ever get nostalgic about about the country, about the time that you spent there? Uh, yeah, I do. I'm, you know, I I love being in China. I've lived there over 15 years of the last, you know, 38 since 1980, and back and forth, you know, five six times a year. I just exactly. You know, I'm I'm very connected there. I feel as connected in in um, in Beijing as I do certainly in New York or Boston, where I lived for most of you know my married life. And uh, when I wasn't in China, you know, I've tons of friends and colleagues. And I feel like in many ways, I understand China more than my own country, you know, and what keeps bringing me back? It's just, you know, it's I think it's where my passion and interests are my colleagues and my work. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think I'll keep doing what I'm doing until I'm, I, I can't handle the jet lag anymore. <laughs> but I seem to be doing okay with it. Uh, uh, for now, you know, yeah. So I, you also yeah. mentioned a little bit earlier in the interview, the importance of mentors for you. I'm mm-hmm. assuming that you've also paid it forward at these further on stages in your career. Is there a piece of advice that a mentor has given you that you found yourself providing for people that you're mentoring? Well, that's a really, really good question. Um, Almost coming full circle. Yeah. Well, so. For that one, I think, you know, the the best piece of advice I ever got was, you know, really to follow your passion. And the passion what will, is what drives your commitment to your work. You know, if you really believe in what you're doing, really care and are interested in what you're doing, then work doesn't feel like a chore. It feels like, you know, you're, 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 you know what drives you, what you're interested in doing. And I think that's taken me very far in my life. I Early on, I dumped art history and followed my China passion. I knew I was interested in it, uh, probably because I never was taught anything about China when I was growing up and in high school. It was all Western European history, American history. So when I kind of started learning about China, I was so interested in it and I pursued it and it's taken me on a super interesting path, right? So public health, I'm inherently interested. I read all the time on my issues and keep up on stuff. I just am interested in it and, uh, you know, never get bored. So I think that's a was a critical piece of advice that served me very well. And the other piece of advice was like, don't lose your ethical core, you know, uh, no matter how much you need to be, um, you know, tough to advance, be kind to people, generous, uh, you know, g- generous in and generous and fair, right? Mm. Uh, and I, I think I've bent over backwards in my life. Uh, you know, being supportive to employees, to others. You know, giving people the benefit of the doubt, cutting slack, trying to um, be sensitive to issues, and you know, being a uh, you know a good boss to work for, um, and a a mentor to to young women in particular. And, you know, many of the organizations I've started and um, hired for in my own career have been women only. And I feel it hasn't been deliberate, but I always feel like I'm bending over backwards to give opportunities to bright women and giving them a leg up on their career path whenever possible, recognizing the obstacles that, you know, I've encountered and that other um, women I've seen have countered in their own career path. 
So, you know, those are, I think, some of the principles that I've worked by. And, um, you know, I feel be, feel proud to be called a mentor to both my, you know, PhD students I've mentored in life, uh, employees who have gone on to bigger and greater things, and uh, students, you know, who I've worked with. Uh, uh, and, you know, I just, that makes me happy, makes me feel good. To my own kids, you know, so... They probably wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that is a really good note to, to end on. Great, great. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Juliana. I really enjoyed it, and I feel honored to be a guest on the show. Oh, my gosh. The pleasure so. is all mine. So thank you so much, Joan. And that's all we have for this time. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser, Jason, and the rest of the team at SubChina. I'll be honest, I got really excited the other day with my first listener mail since our debut. Shout out to Iha and Barbara. And let's keep the conversation going. Our team can be reached at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. You can also follow at SupChina News on Twitter for updates about our episodes. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.